Hello, happy Monday, uh, if you're listening on a Monday, but uh, as I record, this is a Monday, and as it's coming out, it's a Monday, but welcome back to the Life in Red podcast, we're lifeinredpodcast.com, at Life in Red podcast on Instagram and Facebook, and Life in Red pod on Twitter. My guest today, uh, we're continuing along by introducing you to some of uh, my fellow community champions with Unsinkable, um, which is a mental health organization, if you have not been paying attention. But uh, my guest today, what a really interesting person, and I respect her so much because we only touched on very surface level parts of her life, which at times are very heavy. We didn't even go into everything um, that she has been through in her lifetime in great detail, and yet she has come out on top with incredible courage and bravery and being able to give back to the community and help other people through their issues, uh, not only in her advocacy work, but in her full-time job, which is even more admirable. Um, we talk about a lot of things. We talk about you know bullying. We talk about some of her struggles with uh, BPD, which is borderline personality disorder, with addiction, with other mental health struggles um, and, and leave you leaves you with a lot to think about and a lot to reflect on. So give her a follow on social media, um, follow her, her work, which again, it just blows me away. Um, please give it up for my guest, Maria Estrada. You take the red pill, you stay in Wonderland. And I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. Continuing on the journey of meeting uh, my fellow unsinkable family, uh, I'm pleased to be joined today by my new friend, part of that unsinkable family, Maria. Thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me. We, we've interacted on social media. You know, we're friends on Instagram, friends on Twitter. Um, but I really don't know much about your story. I heard a, a little bit during our first kind of like initial group session where we had like two minutes. Um, but I think your story is a, is a lot more than a, a two minute long story. So let's go kind of right back to the beginning. Um, when, when did you start experiencing like the first signs of like struggling with your mental health? I mean, yeah. My story is, it's, I always like to be sarcastic with it because that's how I cope. So I'm a little bit more like morbid in that sense. But, um, so I immigrated to Canada um, okay. when I was six. But when I think about when I first started to notice something that was different about me was when I was, you know, the earliest memory I could have is when I was four years old. And I knew that there was something different. I, I didn't necessarily fit in with the kids. Um, going into like elementary school in Peru, I was just, you know, there was something different about me and I knew it and other people like also noticed. Um, but it really kind of kicked in when we immigrated to Canada and, um, that kind of blew up all of my previous mental health issues that I, that I started to struggle with as a kid. What were some <laughs> of these things that 
you know, made you feel different or that people were maybe noticing now that you're kind of old enough to reflect back on it? Yeah. I mean, I was highly anxious, highly, highly anxious. Um, and I have like a lot of social anxiety. So I kind of become this introvert person. And with that, I become like super awkward and with, you know, kids at school, like I was always that, you know, awkward, shy, I would always stumble on my own words. Um, and it was, it was mostly just trying to fit in in school was really hard. And I was bullied a lot because I was different. Um, because I was just like that awkward girl. Um, and I mean, I'm still awkward, but as a, as a kid, it's, it's something that, you know, kids really picked on that that's primarily like just that anxiety piece. Okay. So we're, you even picked on like Peru and then when you came over to Canada, like, did that, like, did the kids make fun of you because, you know, you weren't from here? Like, was there that racial aspect? Cause you know, kids are kids. They don't always understand those differences. Like, right. You're like, you're the new person. Now all of a sudden it's snowing, it's freezing. You're in a new school, everything you knew that when you were like a kid, even though you were still young, like now you're like in this totally new surrounding with different everything from culture to language to all these things. Like, is that kind of what made you like things just kind of get worse already being that anxious kid? Yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, just if you're different, people really notice that. And a lot of people, when you're different, they like to pick the negative things and they really like to dissect things. So, you know, not knowing English, automatically like that way is something that kids could pick on me because I wouldn't understand or you know um reading reading always made me anxious as a kid so when it was like my turn to read I would like panic and just all the words like disappeared and I was like I don't know what I'm reading um and you know like it was it was yeah a new country new language new culture um the, the winter, everything was just too much for me to handle, which really brought out my anxiety. And, you know, kids, kids did bully me like a lot. I was bullied tremendously for multiple years just because I didn't know the language or if I, you know, said something by accident that didn't necessarily make sense. Everybody would just like point and laugh and um, that was really, really harmful for like my, my overall like self-esteem, right? Like, I already know I'm different. You don't have to point it out. Um, and yeah, it was just, I would be that person that would eat by herself or the last player that they would pick for like dodgeball, right? And who would be stuck with Maria? And then whoever got stuck with me, I would, the first target would be me. Right. So it, it was those little things that because they could, right. Mm-hmm. I couldn't really defend myself. And um, that gave them, I guess, a green light to do that. Yeah. Like looking back to even when I was a kid, um, I was kind of picked on for having red hair. Like it wasn't extreme bullying. Like I know other people have experienced, but I did have a little bit of it. Um, but I, I think back now in hindsight, because I was one of the sporty kids and one of the, you know, athletes or whatever. So, you know, I was almost on the other side of that where, you know, you, when the last kid gets picked, you'd never even like, I never did it maliciously. 
I don't remember ever doing that, but like looking back, knowing what I know now, like I feel like I can feel the empathy for, for kids like that, because in the time you don't really understand what it's like to be the outsider unless you're the outsider and how much that can affect people and, and not only affect them in that moment with, with sadness or anxiety or, or depression or, or anything like that, but what it does to them as they grow up. So as you, as you, you know, started to mature, you started to become more, you know, acclimated to being in Canada and you started to understand things more and grow up. How did those things that happened to you when you were super young affect you as you were growing up? Did it get better? Did it get worse? What was um, happening? It got so much worse. Um, Cause I was bullied, you know, I came, I got integrated to Canada when I was in grade four and I was bullied from grade four to grade eight. Grade nine was my awesome year. Um, and then grade 10 all the way to, till I graduated, I got bullied. So there wasn't necessarily a break of being bullied. I think I just got used to it, but what it did to me as a person and my self-esteem and my self-worth and just how I like looked myself. Um, I'd be like, well, if other people think I'm, you know, weird, like what's wrong with me? Right. And I had this whole like identity crisis as to, oh, maybe if I was like her, um, I would fit in. Or maybe if I, you know, talked a certain way, that would be better. Um, but honestly, just the bullying itself destroyed me. It was, it was awful. I started having depression, you know, it led to suicidal thoughts. It led, you know, once we got into high school, it led to a lot of self-harm um, because, you know, I, I just didn't know where to escape. Like I go to school for, you know, seven, eight hours, um, give and take. And, you know, it's like I don't see my mom um, and it's just me and my mom. So mm -hmm. that automatically like we don't have a, we didn't have any family here. It's just me and her. And um you know, me trying to protect her because she's already going through so much as a parent, um, trying to figure out jobs and food and all of that. So I really had to keep all of that in, all of my feelings, really just like buried them in there um, and pretend to be like, you know, I was this happy kid to my mom because I didn't want her to stress over that piece, right? Um, but I it, honestly bullying is one of the most like hurtful things because it just snowballs into so many other things, right? Depression, anxiety, self-harm, uh, suicidal thoughts, like all of those things were just becoming more and more louder as time went on. Mm -hmm. That's one of the biggest things. And especially in the last couple of episodes, there, there's definitely a theme here of, how bullying affects people um and I, i'm beginning to understand it a lot more because i was i was never the bully but i was a popular person in high school and in, in i'm from a small town so it's a little bit different i kind of knew everybody already but you, you never understand if you haven't gone through it just like the impact that it has um not only i mean there's some unfortunately 
well, it's like, there's positive aspects because a lot of people seem to come out of it and want to make a difference. But like you're saying, taking me through this story on, on how it affected you as you were growing up, was it, was it just the bullying that was causing these, these feelings of uh, like you were talking about depression, anxiety, self-harm, or was there, you know, that compounding on like mental illness that was also growing and you just didn't know it. You thought maybe one day it would get better. Like once the bullying stopped, everything will just be better. You know, was that also growing at the same time? I mean, there's diff- so many different factors, right? Um, to to my story. I mean, just not having any family here was really rough. And um, we didn't necessarily were like the wealthiest. We were, you know, we really struggled with food and and going through like the food banks and my mom working 12 hour shifts to just pay rent, all of those things that you watch, right? Like you automatically get worried um, when you're not supposed to, like, you know, I'm six, seven years old and, and you know, I'm, I'm struggling with all of this. That That's a lot, that's a lot to, to handle. And then you add bullying into it. Um, and honestly, at those points, like, I didn't think it was going to get better. I was, I, you know, I got to the point where I was like, yeah, this is, this is it. Like, you know, and I was, I was brutally like bullied. It wasn't just like, you know, people were picking on me. It was, um, girls would like lock me in the, in the um, bathroom stalls and just laugh. And I, at one point, I don't even know at the time, but we were at recess and then people were playing sports and all of a sudden I'm like, I get hit with three different types of balls all on purpose, you know, a volleyball. And then it was a soccer ball. And then it was a football, like right at my face. Um, and it, it was, it was one of those, right. It's not that it's, you know, picking on me. It's really, you know, picking on my body, picking on my hair. Um, Oh, like you don't have this type of backpack or, you know, it's just like little things that girls compare. Um, that wasn't something that I needed. Um, because I knew like, I I couldn't afford those things. Um, I can't ask my mom for for those. Like, I'm just going to stress her out. So let me just suffer in silence. Uh, And that was a lot of the most of my story was just suffering in silence because who else am I going to tell? I don't have family mm-hmm. here. I don't have friends. My mom, I could hear, I could feel and, and see her stretch thin to make me sense. Um, and, and yeah, like it was just, people are mean. <laughs> they can be. Yeah. There's uh a lot of there are lots of good people but there are all lots of bad people too um, mm-hmm. and you know maybe not even necessarily bad but i don't know what it is about kids and this is something i'm i'm starting to become a lot more interested in learning about the psychology and some science behind it but what makes especially in high school that makes people act violently like they might be a good kid or a, come from a good family but like they would still act out in this like violent way, like lo- locking you in a, a locker room. I, I think back to sports and hazing rituals that I saw, you know, I'm just like, 
I don't necessarily think they're a bad person, but they're okay with being a part of these like awful actions that again, knowing what I know now can last with people so much longer than just that particular incident. And it becomes like that much scarier that we're capable of this. Mm-hmm. No, what happened to you? So you go through high school, you graduate. Um, what was starting to happen in your life then? Because, you know, once the bullying aspect of school is kind of gone, you kind of have maybe a little bit more of a freedom to kind of think about your life in a, in a different way. What started to happen after you graduated? Well, I mean, I think it got really bad when I was in grade 12 because I was in and out of hospital most of grade 12. Um, Because by that time, I had attempted to take my life five times. And it was because of all these things that were struggling, like I was struggling with, right? Um, And you, you really start to think of like, what's wrong with me? Like, what did I do? And because you see other people making fun of you, therefore you think there's something wrong with you, therefore you need to punish yourself. And that was kind of my thinking of like self-harming. And it was also a lot of pain. There's a lot of emotional pain that where am I supposed to like bring it or take it out or, you know, trying to keep it in was really hard. So grade 12, um, most of my grade 12, I was in and out of, um, you know, psychiatric units, um, trying to figure out like what's going to happen to me. Um, I didn't know if I was going to graduate. I, um, didn't necessarily care at that point. I was just like, I was, it was my lowest point. So, I mean, after I graduated, um, it was, it was a really actually surprising that I got accepted to most of the universities and colleges that I wanted to go to. Um, and then I thought, you know, I could begin my life, but because you haven't, you have so many secrets and you've kept them in for so long and they're spilling everywhere and it's, you're creating a huge mess and you see, you know, all the mess that you are carrying and leaving behind. It, it was, it was really rough for me. Like I started, um, you know, I got diagnosed with depression, anxiety, um, post-traumatic stress disorder, you know, just because one, the move, but also as a kid, I was sexually assaulted. Um, so then you add that piece into it. Um, and you know, there's so many layers to it. And when I finally got diagnosed with all of these things, especially I got diagnosed with borderline personality disorder. And that was one of the best things that could ever happen to me is being diagnosed because I knew that I had an illness, that there wasn't anything wrong with Maria. Maria's brain is sick. Right. Right. Yeah. It's like that weight off your, your shoulders. Um, and at least some validation that it's like, okay, there's, there's something here and you can kind of see a light in a way. Answer how you're comfortable with this question. And if you're not, that's okay. But I want to go into this, this mindset of self-harm and, you know, trying to take your own life several different times. So I've only tried once. Most people I've known have only tried once and kind of have like a light bulb or epiphany moment. 
but even with that people you know there's still a lot of stigma around it there's still for people who don't understand it you know that they're, they're selfish that you know whatever adjective or what they want to use with it but if you can can you take me through some of that mindset with not only you know wanting to do it once but over and over again and and you know you're in and out of the hospital you're, you're talking to doctors maybe experimenting with different treatments to try to get you help, but yet you still end up where you were. What was really going through your mind at that time? Because to, to get like that low, I, I want to try to help bring people into that mindset so they can understand it a little bit better. Yeah. Um, I, well, I remember my first attempt, I was in, I was in grade nine. And at that point, breathing was so exhausting. And school was, you know, complicated. Um, my home life was a disaster. Like, you know, my, my family, um, our dynamics are so dysfunctional in every single aspect of it. So going home wasn't safe. Um, and every time I would wake up, I'd be like, fuck, I have to do it all over again. Um, so that night I, you know, I tried to take my life and I went, went to sleep hoping I wouldn't wake up. And when I did wake up, my disappointment mm. with some of the, like, I can still feel the disappointment that I had. Right. It's like, I, my alarm went off, I opened my eyes and I'm literally like, fuck, I'm still alive, right? Um, and then from there, it was just one after the other and my family doesn't understand mental health or addiction. Like that's culturally, it's unacceptable. Like they don't, they don't do that. So then you add that layer into it or I can't tell my mom or my, my brother like, hey, I'm struggling because that's not a thing in my house. Um, and, and, you know, things were just getting so bad. My feelings were intensifying. I hadn't, I didn't have a safe space. Um, everywhere I turned was just this darkness and the emotional pain that I was in was so much that one person can't do it. And, you know, you normally have tons of support systems that are able to carry you when you can't carry yourself, but I didn't have any of that. And it was getting too heavy to carry on my own. And it was just like, fuck it, you know? And grade 12 was my third attempt. I had a multiple in grade 12 and finally, like I, got hospitalized at McMaster here in Hamilton and, you know, the Oakville child and adolescent units. Cause I was, you know, I needed to be admitted. Like I was a risk to myself and it wasn't just, you know, I wanted to hurt myself. It was like, Oh, I'm also self-harming. Yeah. It's not just thoughts anymore. There's action. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I, I, can't really talk about it, um, but I'm seeing right now firsthand how our 
systems and our mental health systems in particular, but for children, how much it fails kids. Um, Again, without going into too much detail, like I just, I see how the, what we've built structurally and and systemically, like it, it, it doesn't save kids, which in turn leads to sick adults. um, If, if they make it there. Um, Like I'm just, I'm seeing it now, which I didn't see before because I didn't experience heavy mental illness or experience with, with self-harm or anything until I was in my twenties when, and that's kind of when a lot of it really takes for, for a lot of people. So I didn't, I didn't see it. And now that I am, I'm like, you know, I, I just feel for every child who is let down by our system and not protected and not given treatment and the things that they need to, to find some sort of success in life. And it's, so disheartening yeah um tell me a little bit about what borderline personality disorder was like what what's its like definition and and how does it how how, you know what are your symptoms how does it affect your life every day um i love that you're asking this question i do and because i'm a huge advocate for borderline um, because I, I acknowledge that it's very much stigmatized and mm-hmm. people are terrified of it. So when you're asking me this question, I'm like, yes, I can talk about it. Um, but yeah, I mean, uh, borderline personality disorder is just somebody that's not able to regulate their own emotions pretty much, okay. right? Um, it The name itself is very tricky because people think it's like multiple personalities and yeah. um, they will be changing that in the new DSM. Um, because pretty much it's a mood disorder, right? It's somebody that can't regulate their emotions, that they think very black and white, um, very extreme. So it's either I hate you or I love you. Um, and people describe borderline as a third degree burn for feelings. Hmm. So when you get a third degree burn, like your nerves are exposed, like the air touching your, your skin, like your nerves, that is excruciating that's borderline, but with emotions, right? And, and it's, it's a lot of intense emotions that I don't know what to do with it. And um, why there's, there's, a, there's a heavy criteria as to um, being diagnosed with borderline and there's like different, nine different categories of it. Um, but it's pretty much, you know, like intense feeling of abandonment. Mm. Um, and that abandonment is huge, right? And um, so it's intense, intense feeling of abandonment, um, risky behavior, so self-harm, um, suicidal attempts or thoughts, um, lack of self-concept, um, not trying to figure out like who you are, and you're okay. kind of shifting to figure out like who, who is this person. And that's, that's pretty much like the ba- main criteria. Like I said, there's, there's multiple, there's nine criteria in general, but it was that feeling of like intense emotions. Um, Even as a, you know, in the mental health community, um, we, we tend to only focus on depression and anxiety the most, which is important but you're right that it's stigmatized and even using 
because you've used the acronym BPD. Mm-hmm. And I like, even till this moment, till you said it, I always thought that, that was bipolar disorder. Mm-hmm. So I didn't realize that the, like it was associated with another, you know, another illness. Um, but, you know, I'm glad we're talking about it because you're, you're right. It is stigmatized. And um, I actually had uh, a gentleman, you may have seen him on Twitter. His name is Victor. Um, he was came on and um, he has a dissoci- dissociative identity disorder, which is multiple personalities. Um, and yeah, people would probably get the two conflated um, and, and yeah. used interchangeably almost in certain cases. Yeah. I mean, yeah, like you just said it, right? It's like borderline personality disorder. We have bipolar and we have DID. Um, And because borderline has that personality disorder, a lot of people thought like, oh, like multiple personalities Um, or people thought it was bipolar. Um, And bipolar and borderline are pretty similar and they can get misdiagnosed because of that. because it's that trend of, you know, depression and mania, uh, except for borderline, the feelings quickly change within minutes. Right, okay. Right, like, um, I'll give you an example. Um, And I really, well, she knows, so that's fine. (laughs) Um, So I have my friend and um, she was gonna, you know, take some time and go to a hotel and, you know, chill by herself, like a self-care, and she invited me, um, and I was like, oh my god, great, but then that later that night, she's like, oh, like, I'm so sorry, Maria, like, I just, I, I did this because I wanted to be by myself, and self-care, that is very rational, like, I get it, borderline Maria didn't get it, mm-hmm. borderline Maria, that was uh, rejection, that was abandonment, and that spiraled into everybody hates me. Uh, I need to quit my job. I'm going to get fired. Like my brain just spiraled, and it, and it was just that one trigger of feeling rejected and abandoned. Um, and it changes so quickly with bipolar. It's like you get two weeks of being manic, and then you know a month, two months of just depression, or maybe you're just stable for a couple of months. Right. So it's sporadic. Um, and then, you know, being diagnosed with borderline because it's so stigmatized, a lot of people um, call people that have borderline manipulative. Mm. Yeah. And I, when I look at people who manipulate, I see it as resiliency because that person is getting their needs met by the only way that they know how, which is to manipulate, right? So it's pretty genius if you think about it, right? That person's getting their needs met. They don't have any other way. So they do what they need to do, but their needs are like, their needs are being met, right? So genius to me. I'm like, yeah, that's called resiliency. But because manipulation and and all of that, it's, um, has such a negative association with it. So they were like, oh, Maria, you know, she manipulates people and um, um, she can't like control herself and she's a good liar. First of all, I'm a horrible liar. Um, and it, it, that, that honestly, um, my 
therapist when I got diagnosed with borderline, she did prepare me for this. She's like, it's very stigmatized. You know, that you're going to be okay. Just know who you are. Don't listen to the stigma around it. Um, and I was watching a documentary and he was saying how this psychiatrist, like every, every medical field has that one disease that is fatal. And the psychiatrist said that borderline personality disorder is fatal and it can't be treated. Mm. And I'm like, that's not true. Right. Brought up a really, that's a, this is what I love about the podcast because that is a very interesting perspective that I have never heard before because manipulation is often associated with narcissism or, you know, that behavior where you, you are doing it for personal gain and often to harm the other person. Mm-hmm. And this is an interesting perspective that I have never thought about before, but now I'm going to keep in mind when thinking about these things is that their needs are not being met and this is the way they know how to have their needs met. So that like, interesting. I'm going to really ponder that and really think about that because in a way, when you think about it that way, that manipulation isn't necessarily harmful in that I mean, it can be in that instance as well, but it, it doesn't have to be, you know, if you're looking for love or you're looking for secure, uh, being secure. It's interesting. I want to touch back on, you know, what you we were talking about in that, when you, the spiral. Because what I find interesting is even when I'm super anxious or I'm a su- in like a very depressive episode, I can rationally think in my brain, I'm like, like trying to be like, it's like a voice in my head that's being like, Ryan, like, no, 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 no. Like, this isn't real. You know, this is just a moment. Like I can, I can hear that voice, but that voice doesn't affect me from not feeling these things. And the feelings often win when you're going through that, you know, that mania, that spiral, that, you know, that rejection, the abandonment, is it the same thing for you? Or does it become kind of like a blackout blur? So I acknowledge and I, I, I acknowledge and I have the privilege of being high functioning um, with all my illnesses, right? And I wasn't high functioning for a very long time until I, I learned how to live with it. Um, so when I get triggered, my emotion mind is like 10 times or a thousand times more stronger. However, Maria is like, your friend wasn't rejecting you. It makes sense that she wants to be alone. She lives with her family. We, we, we work in the same field and it's, she's exhausted, right? It's not that she hates you. So it's that battle of like, I know what reality is. Like I know what that wise mind is but my emotions kind of just take over. And I feel like it's a battle of like the brains, right? Um, But for me, when I get triggered and I spiral, that emotion mind takes over. It doesn't matter if I rationalize with it. If I'm too far gone, like I just have to wait it out. Right. What are some of the things that, 
you've learned, whether it's through therapy or just, you know, through internal dialogue and sitting with yourself and just understanding it and understanding who you are, what are some of the ways you, you know, live with it that you kind of treat it to be able to get through? I look at it in a very separate way in regards to Maria's brain is sick, right? There's nothing wrong with Maria. Like she's pretty cool. She's chill. You know, she's doing her own thing. She's smart, but Maria's brain is sick and it struggles and it's very different. Right. Um, and I know some people don't like labels and I acknowledge that, but to me, that was a validation that there was nothing wrong with me. And with that, I did a lot of therapy. Like we're going on to like 10 years of therapy, right? And I have tried everything from, you know, cognitive behavioral therapy to dialectal behavior therapy to trauma to now I'm doing E, um, e what is it? Rapid eye movement. Oh, I can't think mm. of the acronym right now. Um, and I needed to do all of that because when I got to the point where I wanted recovery, um, I knew that I had to take any suggestion, anything and everything that people threw at me, I needed to take. And if that was doing, you know, uh, outpatient for a month, although I didn't like it, although I complained and all of that, like I needed to be there to gain the coping skills. Um, we talked about medication, right? Like that's what my brain needs because there's a lot of chemical imbalances going on. And that puts me in a stable mood, um, for me to be able to think rationally and use the skills that I have. So, um, it was that piece of like, I need, I need recovery and it was that light bulb And then I tried anything and everything that people threw at me and throughout, you know, kind of like a decade, right? Therapy isn't like you get fixed. Um, A lot of people like go to a therapy session and I'm like, am I fixed? Like, Mm -hmm. which I thought that too. I'm like, so what's wrong with me? Mm -hmm. Um, And it was doing a lot of unpacking and doing all that dirty work and, and all of those things that I needed to be ready and willing to do. And, um, yeah, like that's, I was able to come to that mind where Maria's brain is sick. Feelings are not facts. Feelings are feelings. And we validate them because my feelings sometimes get a little bit intense. So, you know, but when Maria thinks everybody hates me, that's not a fact, right? Your neighbor doesn't even know you, but they don't hate you. That's not everybody. Um, they probably, you know, um, ran into me once, like everybody is so like, that's a lot of people. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a combination of therapy, um, medication, good support system. Mm. You mentioned some good points there, um, specifically about choosing recovery, which again, is not a, that's not like you articulated it in a way that I've never been able to articulate, but it's an important part of the journey of mental illness or mental health. 
and it was a question I, I talked about with Dave and I've talked about with other people. It's like, there's kind of like the two separate communities of mental health and mental illness where you have the people who don't necessarily want to get better or they're not ready to get better yet. And they're, they're, they're either stuck or, or they perpetuate that, you know, their mental, the illness is who they are and they really kind of cling to that identity. But you, like I said, you just articulated it that like you chose recovery. I chose recovery, you know, other mental health or illness advocates chose recovery and that we were willing to do kind of whatever it takes to, to try to manage it or get better because, you know, there's no cure. It's not like just one day you're just going to wake up and be like, holy, like, holy shit, I'm better. Like, look at me. I'm so happy. Like no bad thoughts anymore. Um, so that was really good. And then the point about therapy, which is a point I always want to drive home with people. Cause you're right. So many people go to one session. It's like, it didn't work. Therapy doesn't work. And they throw their hands up and they give up. It's like, oh no, therapy can, it can work. Maybe you don't have the right therapist. That's absolutely a possibility. Maybe you're not in the right treatment plan. That's a possibility, but a lot of people don't understand how much work therapy is and has to be to, to be successful. People just want it to be like, I'm just going to talk to my therapist. She's going to say some stuff back or he's going to say, or they are going to say stuff back and I'm going to walk out and I'm going to be so much better. I mean, no more problems, but it's like, Oh no, like it's everything about having a mental illness is hard work. It's, it's extra and hard work, like having another job. Yes. Yeah. Um, one of the things you, you mentioned in, uh, in our initial call that I want to touch on, if you're comfortable, you mentioned you, you struggled with addiction. Did I hear that right? Yes. Okay. Do you, do you mind talking about that a little bit? Yeah. Okay. So what, when did this start to happen and what was that like in your life? Um, I started to kind of dabble on different things, grade nine. Um, And I did say grade nine was my best year because I was finally a cool kid and all the cool kids said drugs. Mm. (laughs) So like, that's how I associate. And I was like, that's the best year. Um, But that's essentially like when I started um, and drugs and alcohol were a different way of self-harming. Right. And it was an escape and it was an instant escape. And one became two and, you know, three bottles later. And, you know, I'm still like, let's keep going. Um, it, it wrecked my life and addiction was something that I later focused on. Um, so that, you know, my mental health was first and I needed to get that kind of stabilized and then I started treating my addiction and I was always in denial that I was an addict everybody around me could see it but I was like I'm fine everything's fine (laughs) I'm just having a good time um until it got really really bad that I started to uh cause a lot of chaos in my house and my house was a lot like it was already chaotic and dysfunctional but then you add maria who's like under the influence and there was fights there were things broken there was being you know locked out um 
I, after I graduated, um, I decided to go to college. I got kicked out of college. First of all, I didn't know that they could do that because I'm paying for it. So like, that was a surprise. Um, and a condition in my, my college was, you know, was really nice. That condition was like, you know, we, we know that you're really good at your job and, you know, like we really see a potential, but you need help and you need to go to treatment. Um, but we'll keep a spot for you. So whenever you're ready, you don't have to reapply. You'll just continue on. Um, and you know, like my, my college was, you know, saying I needed help. And in that moment, I'm like, I'm fine. Everything's fine. Um, but I could slowly see my life fall apart. And that was something that really affected me because in my day-to-day life, um, I couldn't function. And addiction is one of the most cunning enemies that I've ever had. Um, And I always, like I'm a recovering addict, right? I say it, I wear proudly. Recovery is, you know, it's, it's a lot of work and it's a lot of tears. And I was dragged into, you know, um, Narcotics Anonymous. That's, that, that's where I, you know, I decided to do the 12 step program because that was something that fit what I needed. And, um, I really, it's a, it's a different dirty work. And Mm. it was realizing that, um, I can never drink you know, like, and alcohol is everywhere. Like people don't like, you know, it's plastered everywhere. You go to a restaurant, there's alcohol. They're like, oh, here's like the cocktail or alcoholic menu. Or I was out, you know, I had a dinner with a friend and we wanted just like, I I just wanted a virgin. Um, I don't even know what I had. And they're like, well, you know, you can put a little bit of vodka. It's like, I just said virgin, I don't want that. Mm. um so yeah it was it was it was a lot um with i was uh i did an episode on alcoholism with uh with becca um who again you might have seen on on twitter somewhere but uh we definitely talked about that because you you don't it's all it's so ingrained in our society and our culture that like you don't even notice how ingrained it is until you stop and open up your eyes. Like we were talking about uh, even at workplace functions are surrounded by like they're, they're centered around alcohol. You mentioned Mm -hmm. restaurants, you mentioned, you know, like almost everything we do, if we're going out, you're, you're going out for drinks almost all the time. Right. Like it's, 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 it's wild. I want to again, get into, because I haven't had a chance really to talk, much about addiction especially addiction to to drugs and the the common stigma and the the common you know mentality around it is you know why don't you just stop why don't you just or or, you know going back to the 80s just say no you know Mm -hmm. people don't understand what it's like to be to to have addiction I don't know what it's like to have an addiction either like I, I I'm even conscious about making jokes now or saying even like I'm addicted to TikTok you know, like I'm, I, I, I use that term a lot. Like I don't use it as loosely as I, I might have used to just being conscious of it. 
the brain of an, an addict, take me into that. What, you know, explain why you can't just say no, why you can't just stop. Um, that's a great question. Um, because one is too many and a thousand is never enough. Um, I can't just have one. That's something that, you know, it's my addiction was my priority. It didn't matter if I didn't sleep for a week, as long as I had my fix then I was good. It didn't matter if I had to lie to my mom about where I was as long as I had my fix, right? Like I did not care about anybody, including myself, unless I had a fix. And when you think about it, it's kind of like awful, right? Um, it's like, oh my God, like I, 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 I wouldn't eat, I wasn't myself. Like, all I could think about was drugs. And it's, it's so hard to kind of like wrap around um, to really, I, I'm, I'm obviously having a hard time describing mm -hmm. it, but it was all consuming. And one is too many and a thousand is never going to be enough. That's why I can't just have one. Right. That, uh, I think that that's the message that it's most important to drive home that it, it's all consuming. And then your brain, like you just, it's not rational anymore. It can't just say no. It can't just stop because like, you know, once you're there, especially with some of the, the drugs that are out there and how addictive they are, whether it's, you know, it's cocaine, whether it's opi opioids and, you know, it just, that mixed with the addictive personality and having an addiction is just like, you can't control it. You could be the strongest mental person in the world. And, you know, if you get into this mindset, like you're not going to be able to like it's strong. it's more powerful in a lot of ways, especially in that moment. Than, than I don't think anybody realizes, including myself. Um. Yeah. Like I, aside from my, you know, five attempts to take my life, I had overdosed three times, mm. and I did not care. Really. You know, I'm like, oh, still alive. Let's continue. Right. Um, That's not enough to like snap that cycle to be like oh, wow, like I need help and I need to stop. People need to hit their rock bottom, but they need to hit their rock bottom. Right. And a lot of, you know, the clients that I support that may have, you know, um, somebody in their life that's an addict and they're like, how can I get them to rock bottom? They need to get to rock bottom, whatever that looks like, right? Clearly to me wasn't overdosing. Um, Clearly to me, wasn't that I was, you know, causing a lot of chaos in my, in my life or that I got kicked out of school. Um, my rock bottom was the fact that it started to interfere with my career. And that was not okay to me mm. because that's the only thing that I worked so hard to, to get is my career, my, you know, 
my advocacy work or, you know, I'm a child and youth counselor and, you know, I, I do a lot of like either peer support or counseling, things like that. And when my job was at Jeopardy, because I showed up at work, I, I showed up um, high and um, a psychiatrist questioned my ability and, and thank God that psychiatrist was nice enough not to report me. And he's like, you need to get help or, or else. And that was my rock bottom. And then I got dragged to a meeting and I kicked and screamed for months. And it's like the withdrawal, right? People don't think about that. Mm -hmm. I don't think about that. The withdrawal or the post-acute withdrawal, I didn't even know that was a thing. I, my first six months of recovery, I was going through withdrawal. Six months of throwing up, of sweating, of like feeling just like awful. Um, and, you know, I'm approaching uh, three years clean and sober next month. And I would have a hard time saying no if I was at a party and somebody's like offered a platter of like drugs, right? I question myself, I'm like, what would I do? Uh, because my addict is never gonna be gone. It's like in the parking lot doing push-ups until it's a weak moment that it can take over. I know, I know it's a serious point. It's a funny analogy. <laughs> I know, I like to use analogies just because it's so like people can visualize it. Yeah. Um, like but it's still know. there. It's it's waiting. It's strong. It's it's not just. Uh, it doesn't just go away. No, it's not in a cage. It's not trapped. It's it's quite there, right? Um, I was watching a movie with a friend last night. And by the way, if anybody's gonna come at me for you know social not social distancing or whatever, I live by myself and she's my circle because <laughs> I have nobody else to interact with. Um, and we were watching a movie and it was, I don't know if you watch a movie like Truth, Would You Rather on Netflix? Um, it's quite interesting. But one of the things that's like, would you rather get $50,000 or drink a bottle of whiskey? And the guy was talking to an alcoholic, right? You get $50,000 or you get to drink a, a bottle of whiskey. Which one do you think he chose? Mm -hmm. This guy had 16 years of recovery, 16 years. And he chose the bottle. Wow. Because $50,000, yeah. He ended up dying in the movie, but like, um, like that's, and I suffered through the whole movie when I was watching him. I was like, oh my God, what would I do? What would, um, and it's, it's always going to be there. I always have to be mindful um, and hypervigilant. So when I order a, you know, let's say a pina colada uh, and I say virgin, I have a friend try it first and test for alcohol. And then I can have it. Mm. Right. Mm. Have you watched um, Euphoria? Uh, with Zendaya um, it is a terrific show on so many levels but it's about a, a teenager who gets out of a drug rehab program and uh, it takes 
there's a lot of stuff that happens, but it's, it, it is about her diagnosis with bipolar, but with addiction and drugs and alcohol and all these different things. Um, it, it might be triggering but, uh, as my mic falls over, but uh, it, it potentially could be triggering. I, I will warn you about that, but it's, it, it, again, that show was a real depiction on addiction and drugs and alcohol and all those different things, which, which I loved about it, that it was re- it was real um, and it really showed it all. Before I let you go, we, we talked about your story, but where are you now? Like, how did you get into like being a, a public advocate? I, I know you mentioned you're a, 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 like a social worker, a child and youth worker. Yeah. Like, wh- where's everything at now? Um, uh, well, I have almost three years of recovery time. Just congratulations. Well, you can congratulate me next month because um, I'm so freaking out about it. Mm. Um, and I take it day by day, but, you know, like, I looked at my calendar and I was like, <gasps> April 16th. Um, but so far I have two and, what is it? Two, two years and 11 months-ish of, of clean time. I haven't self-harmed in six years. I've been, you know, I still go to therapy. Like Maria's happy. Maria's happy today. And she wakes up with motivation because she loves her job. And I'm talking to myself like I'm a third person perspective, but um, I, I work, you know, in my community that supported me. Um, and that's always, that's always been my, my goal is to work in the community that always had my back. Uh, and now I'm able to give back. And I, I finished school. Uh, so I finished school as a child and youth counselor and then specialized in mental health and addiction. I wonder why. And yeah, like I am good, although I struggle. I have, a, I have good support systems. I have friends now. That was a huge deal for me. Mm. Um, healthy friends. Um, I, I don't have connection with my family that much, which is okay. Um, but I'm able to, you know, like live by myself, have a job. I got a car, which, you know, with my addiction, that was not a thing. Mm. So I got my life back, back to where I wanted it to be. And although I struggle um, I acknowledge that my brain is sick and I'm always going to have those bad days. But at the end of the day, Maria's pretty cool. And, you know, I love myself and I figured my self-esteem and self-worth and all of those beautiful things. Um, but yeah, at the end of the day, like I'm, I'm happy. And what made you want to become like a more public facing advocate with it? That was an accident. <laughs> oh, Okay. It was, and I learned up there, like, how did you do it? I think it was essential. Um, one of the agencies uh, in my community, Rock Reach Out Center for Kids, um, once I graduated from their program, they threw me a graduation party, which was super cool. Um, we had pizza. <laughs> and they asked me to share my story in their AGM, you know, in their annual general meeting. And I did, and I was shaking like a leaf I'm pretty sure I couldn't even read my own like I was just like ah um a media was there and 
after that, it kind of blew up within my community and then started to blow up in the GTA. And here I am being like, I have social anxiety. I don't want this attention. <laughs> I know attention. I'm like, <sighs> um, and you know, media started to kind of happen and different people like Silken reached out and um, all of these things were just happening. And at the end of the day, like I wish I had somebody that shared their story. Um, and if I, you know, 12 year old Maria, if I heard somebody that was struggling with all of this and, you know, had the aspects of immigration, bullying, mental health, addiction, sexual assault, like all of those things, I know I'm a package. Um, I, I, if I can give one person hope that it's going to be okay, like that's all what I, what I want to do. And, um, I'm very thankful for the platform that I have. Uh, but it was an accident, but I, I do love it. And people do ask me like, how can you speak in front of 500 people? Well, it's my story, so I can't fuck it up. And if they do, if I do, they won't notice. So um, that kind of gives me like motivation. I'm like, that's okay. You know, like I can do this. Um, but yeah, it's, that's me in a, in a nutshell. Well. Um, well, I, I know you, you went through a lot of pain, a lot of struggles, but, uh, you're a remarkable person and, um, your story is very, it's inspirational, but it's real. It's not all butterflies and rainbows and, you know, like you're very honest. And, uh, I appreciate that because I think that's even more important than someone who, who, you know, went through something, but then something happened and now they're all better and now they can look back, but that's, you know, something, somebody like you and your story that just like, no, like I, you know, you still refer to yourself as an addict or recovered addict. You're still admit to your struggles. Um, you're still very honest with the things that you go through on social media. And to me, like, I respect that a lot. And uh, I really appreciate you making time space and, and energy for this conversation today. Cause I think it's really important. Thanks so much. No, I appreciate it. I'm, I'm happy that we're finally able to do this. Um, but yeah, that's, I, it's me and I'm, I'm not, I'm not ashamed of who I am anymore, uh, which is the beauty of what recovery has given me. So thank you for allowing me to have a space where I can share my story and a little bit about me and also the real. <laughs> where can people find you on social media? I know you're on Instagram. I know you're on Twitter. If people want to follow you, get to, you know, contact you or anything. Yeah. So it's my name. So it's Maria Strada um, 17 on social media. Beautiful. Maria, thank you so much. This is, this is a real treat. Thank you. Take the red pill, you stay in Wonderland, and I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes.